You're listening to Mountainside Podcast. Thank you, Chai, for reading our scripture. If you uh, have read or you know Christian history for the last two millennia, uh, you may be struck by our divisions. As in any dysfunctional family, there's been a lot of fighting. We've done a lot of fighting, Christians, over who's in charge, over what is true and what's not true, fighting over how we should live. We've been divided over the day that we should worship on, on the clothes that we should wear, on the animals that we should or should not eat, on the beards, how close we should trim them, whether we should have them at all or whether mustaches are better. We've been divided over some really stupid stuff. But what has united almost all Christians across time and space, across cultures and gender and classes, is a simple confession of common belief known as the Apostles' Creed. Since about, uh, something about 150 AD, Jesus' followers have stood side by side as brothers and sisters, as fathers and mothers in China, in Russia, in India, in Canada, in America, and confessed together, I believe. I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus, his son, our Lord. We will have opportunity over the next few months to confess that creed together if you want to, if you want to join us. But we've done it already today. We sang that song, I Believe. So the lyrics of that song are the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a short statement, a short summary of what Christians have always believed. And we're going to preach on it over the next two months. If you feel like a snowstorm just blew into your soul, don't worry. There is an exciting twist. I'm going to get to that in a second. But first, a couple questions. Is the Apostles' Creed Scripture? No. Christians have always only affirmed the Bible as Christian Scripture. Then why are we preaching something that is not Scripture? Well, we're not actually going to preach the Creed. We're going to preach the Scriptures that are behind the Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a distillation into 115 words of the teachings of the entire Bible, especially the New Testament. And that's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. And not because it was written by apostles, as in like Jesus' first 12 followers, but because it summarizes succinctly their teaching in the New Testament. And that's why it's been really handy. It's its shortness and its simplicity that have been so helpful to Christians. So if somebody asked you, what do you believe? You're a Jesus follower. Somebody comes and says, what do you believe? It would take you 18 hours and 20 minutes to read the New Testament alone to them. But you could, in 30 seconds, say the Apostles' Creed and sum up the essence of what Christians have believed through the last two millennia. How tasty is that? Great yell just went up. Uh, so for the next couple months, we're going to unpack these powerful, essential truths that come from the Bible in which Jesus taught us about. Why? Because we like the sound of people reciting incantations together in monotone. 
Yes, and we will have Kool-Aid after the service for everybody that wants it. No, the reason we want to teach through the Apostles' Creed is because the Creed is not only the description of who God has revealed himself to be in the Bible, so we can know God, essentially, you know, his essential characteristics through this creed, but it is simultaneously a claim on how you and I, if we confess this creed, it is simultaneously a claim on how you and I will live if we believe and we confess that God. So when we confess the creed, we also confess this is how I will live. And it is crucial that we understand that connection. That will become obvious when I show you some pictures, we'll quickly rifle through some people who have confessed the Apostles' Creed, people who say that they believe in God our Father and Jesus' Son and so on and so forth. So here's a quick run-through of a bunch of people that have confessed it. Mother Teresa, Elvis Presley, Donald Trump, Peter Popoff, John Wycliffe, the Roman Emperor Constantine, Martin Luther, Benny Hinn, Henry VIII, he's there with his wives, some of which he killed, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Bill Clinton, Desmond Tutu, and last but not least, Matthew Kaliba. <laughs> with some fish. At least one of these doesn't belong for certain reasons. Uh, when you look at that list... We can go to the next slide. I want to distract you with those huge fish the whole time. Uh, when you look at that list, you might think, you know, some of these people's lives seem to be out of sync with the God that they've confessed. So all those people confessed the Christian creed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they lived a Christian life, did it? And that raises the question, what does it really mean to believe. What do we mean when we say, I believe? What do we mean when we say, I have faith in God? So is faith a confession of truth? And that's it. it is, a, is it agreeing to believe something? Is it being certain in your heart and in your mind that what you're confessing is true? Is that what belief is? What does it mean to have faith? And specifically, Christian faith, because that's what we're interested in. Uh, the Apostle James, who was Jesus' brother, and whom Ty just read a portion of Scripture from a, bo a book that he wrote, a letter that he wrote, he wrote this brilliant line. He said this, I will show you my faith by what I do. I'll show you my faith by what I do. So James says, if you want to know what my faith is, then look at my life. If you want to know what I believe in, then look at what I do. What I do is a demonstration, an expression of what I believe. So James says the only creed that really matters is a lived creed. It's the creed that you live with your life. He says to us, you believe there is one God. Good. Now pat on the back. You can recite a creed. You might even be sincere about that. You might really actually believe that God exists, that he is the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. You know, that's great. You might not even be faking about that. 
But the demons believe that too, and they tremble with fear. It's like a low blow, man. It's like hitting below the belt on that one. With that line, James shatters the thought that many of us have that faith is certainty. Certainty about truth claims. So this is what many of us think that faith is. It's certainty about God. It's, it's certainty about his existence. It's certainty about the specific claims of who he is that's written down in the Bible. We want that kind of faith, right? We want to be certain about God. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. I want to be really certain. I want to be sure about God. And therefore sure about how I should live. We don't want to doubt. You know, doubt makes us uncomfortable. Doubt makes us wonder if this is really worth it. You know, are we deluded about God? Are we just believing some big group think over the centuries and then risking our lives on that? You know, doubt about God makes us uncomfortable. Isn't certainty the fuel of the Christian life? You know, if God was to give us certainty, if we could, you know, rifle through the evidence and the books, and then become totally convinced that this must be true. If a miracle could happen in our midst that would absolutely convince us of the supernatural, then, you know, we would really live into this. We would take some more steps to follow Jesus. You know, that risky, costly life. We move, maybe, on the spectrum from Peter Popoff over to Mother Teresa. If we were certain, dead certain about God. Well, James says, more than anyone else, the demons are certain about God. The demons, the fallen angels, the people, and they are people who are most certain about the exact nature of God, about his existence and his power, are the same people that hate his guts and fight against him actively as his enemies. If you read the Gospels, you see that the people who first see Jesus for who he is and who make the most orthodox, you know, true confessions of the nature of Jesus are demon-possessed people. So like the you know, very beginning of the story, in Jesus' life, he goes into the synagogue, it's like a church service like this, and he's preaching, and a, a dude stands up and says, I know who you are, Jesus, you're the Holy One of God, and you're the Messiah. So he makes an orthodox confession way before anybody else does of the nature of Jesus. What does that say about the value of orthodox confessions alone? There's nothing wrong with being certain about anything, provided we're humble about it. But according to James, the real marker of true Christian faith is not certainty. The real marker, you have faith in God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son and in his Holy Spirit is what you do. It's how you live regardless of how certain you are, despite the doubts you might have about God. James says it is living, the Apostles' Creed, that matters even when you have some doubt about it. And he makes this point over and over and over in his letter, even the short little passage that Ty just read, he says, My brothers and sisters, if people say they have faith but do nothing, their faith is worth nothing. Faith by itself that does nothing is dead. 
just as a person's body that does not have a spirit is dead, so faith that does nothing is dead. You know, he gets really depressing about this. He wants us to know and be certain that we don't have a dead faith, a dead orthodoxy, a confession without a life that is an expression of that confession. There was uh, this, this crazy German guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. And he told this parable about a madman. This is a fake story um, that ran into the, the town square and his eyes are wild and his hair is sticking up straight and he yells out into the middle of the square, God is dead and you and I have killed him. And it sounds like really, really offensive and a lot of Christians have taken a lot of offense at that statement, but you have to understand that Nietzsche never actually believed in God and he would have known that it was ludicrous to think that you could kill a being called God if he did exist. What he was making a statement about was about how Christians live. So Nietzsche lived in a society that was full of Christians, people who called themselves Christians, people who went to church, people who recited the creeds. And yet when he looked at how they lived, when he observed the day-to-day -day rhythms of their life at work, at play, at home, when he saw how they lived, in his opinion, they lived as if God was dead. It was like their lives were a testimony to the non-existence of God. Maybe somewhere, sometime, there was a Christian, you know, whose life was a testimony to a living God. But what Nietzsche saw were God-believers who were functional atheists during most of their life. God was on their lips, but not in their lives. Nietzsche felt, and I think he's right about it, that if a personal loving God existed, then surely he would be the point of our lives. Everything that we did would be about him. And if somebody was to observe our life from the outside, they would be convinced that God was alive to us. He was alive, you know, in the way that we lived. But Nietzsche said, what are these churches but the tombs and the sepulchers of God? By which he meant, it's like Christians go to a funeral service every week. You know, they come into church and they talk about this person who they've loved and did these incredible things and they sing his praises over and over again, but then they go back into living as if he's no longer alive in their life, that he was there, but now he's gone. Let's not do that, right? <laughs> we don't want lives like that, I'm sure. You, like me, want to get to the end, and if you're a Jesus follower, you want to meet Jesus and have him say, well done. Not only did you confess me, no, not only were you unashamed of your faith in me, but you lived as if I was alive. Your life was a testimony to my resurrection. So how do we live, you know, as if the creed is true? How do we live the faith of the resurrected Lord? How do we live the apostles' creed? Do we start to just do, do, do? You know, it's like, well, there's not enough, you know, that I'm doing that shows that I have a real faith. So I just got to get busy with some religious activity, man. And then everybody will know that I am a Christian. No. Uh, if you want to live your faith, then the key from the Christian perspective is to get much more personal with God than you have been. So the first line of the creed is this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
So in this one sentence, there's the key to how we can live our life in an intense personal relationship with God. Uh, much of what is contained in this first line, I have it on the screen, I believe in God the Father Almighty, He's creator of heaven and the earth. Much of that confession is not particularly Christian. So most people alive today and in history have believed in God, the creator, you know, in some form or another. Less than 10% of the entire world's population does not believe in God. So 6.5 billion out of the 7.5 billion people of the world believe in the existence of the almighty creator. Most people who have ever lived believe in an almighty creator. Across almost all cultures and times, people have looked into the heavens and they have seen stars and they have seen the moon and they have seen the sun and concluded that somebody's behind that. Somebody created that. Somebody's in control of that. And they felt the power of a supreme being behind the mountains and underneath the seas and in control of the storms and the earthquakes and the avalanches. We have sensed his presence. Humanity has sensed the presence of God even in the own recesses of our consciousness, our ability to relate, our ability to think about ourselves and relate to other selves. And there have been different responses to the God that we sense and feel that is out there. Some people seeing, not only or sensing that there's a God, but seeing the suffering and the death and the pain and the natural disasters that are rife in our experience of life, have concluded that God is angry with us, that he's angry with how we live as selfish people just about ourselves, and they have tried to appease God. So they've offered him offerings in one way or another. They've done good deeds. They've worked really hard to please them in the hopes that he'll keep the blessings flowing and the disasters and the pain to a minimum. That's one response that people have had to God. Many people still live with that response of God. Others have felt that there's no point in trying to make a connection with God, you know, as if he would or would gain anything from knowing the likes of us, you know, who must be like ants to him. Some people look out there and they're like, you know, God created all there is, protons and neutrons and quarks and neutrinos. He created a universe which seems to be 100 billion light years across, a universe with supernovas and supernassive black holes, you know, what, what, what could the God who created electromagnetism and gravity and DNA have to gain or enjoy from getting to know one of us, you know, who lives 90 years, mostly within the confines of a few miles? What enjoyment could he have in relating to these little puny human beings that he has created? And many people go about their lives living as if, for the most part, God is disinterested in them, and they are mostly disinterested in God. Those are a couple of responses that people have had to the sense that there is a creator, an almighty creator out there. But Christians have found that almighty God, creator of all there is, wants an intensely personal relationship with them through his son, Jesus, such a close relationship that it would be one of family. It's where they would call God Father, and they would know God as their own Father 
and they would know themselves as his children. We believe in God, our Father, because in Jesus, we have experienced being adopted in to the family of creator God. The Apostle Paul says this, When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we're his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Again, Paul says, you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. Now, because we have experienced being adopted into God's family through faith in his son, through what his son has done for us, we call him Dad. In his son, Jesus, the Almighty has invited us into an intensely personal relationship with him where we love him as father and he loves us as his own children. Do you live as if God is your Father, how personal are you really with God? Do you know him as your Abba? Do you live life as if he is your father? Do you know yourself as if you are his child? Now, if you've sensed that the God of the universe is distance and distant and unknowable, if you felt like you know, you're sinful and guilty before him and he's not pleased with you like many human beings have Sense, then you are not all wrong. It would be hubris of us to think that God, you know, automatically, we just assume that God wants to know us. He wants to know me. He loves hanging out with me. You know, <laughs> he has no problem with anything I've done. Obviously, you know, I can affect a connection with him whenever I want. That would be quite prideful of us to just assume that God wants to be really close with us. From our side, looking up, God is unknowable. He is holy. He is separate and different from us. Us sinful, limited creatures cannot bridge to him. So none of us can just affect a connection with God. Like we can just go up there and we can just make a connection with him. And, and, and yeah, we're going to be really close, good friends. But God, he bridged to us. So he's come down to us in his son. So God the Son, and it seems ludicrous that we would say this, but the divine has come human being so that we can know him, we can see him, we can touch him, we can hear him. And his life is captured in his story in the Bible. And when his son, when God's son was hoisted on a cross, he dealt with our sins. He dealt with the crap that lies between us and him so that we could actually live in a close, intense, personal relationship and not have huge problems. So God, the Almighty, has bridged to us in his son. He's removed all the barriers to us knowing him so that you could live every day of your life in an intense, personal relationship with God. That relationship does not flow from certainty. 
So we can't affect a connection with God, a personal connection, by becoming certain. You know, that's not the way that God has decided to bridge to us. You know, I want you to sort through the books and the stories and the evidences, and then once you get that sorted out, you'll feel close to me. You know, that's not the way that God has decided to connect to us. He's just sent his son and said, you have faith in him, and then you'll be brought into communion with me. Knowing God as our Father undergirds a lived Christian faith. And we continue. So if, if you have been adopted into the family, we continue to express that connection to God through prayer, through prayer all of the time. This is the foundation of a personal, close connection with the Father. We should be praying lots and we have to get personal with God in our prayers. You know, we're not just treating God as a slot machine. I mean, he is a provider. He is our father. He wants to provide for us. But much more than that, he wants to know us. And he wants us to know him. So we should be able to talk to God about everything, including our doubts about him. It's like, God, you know, I, I want to believe this. You know, this is what Christians say, what the Bible says, is apparently what Jesus said about you. I want to believe, but I got these problems with it. Can you come close to me? Can you help me? I want to know you. I want to know you as my father. I want to know yourself, myself as your child. Last year, uh, I was chatting with a group of guys and just recognizing that I confine my conversations with God to one part of the day. So I start most of my days reading the scriptures and listening for God's voice in them and praying. But then I kind of you know, put that aside, and I go into the rest of the day not continuing the conversation. It's like, well, that conversation happens here, and then for the rest of the day, it's like I'm a functional atheist. It's like I live as if, you know, God's not around, or he's not there to talk to, he's not there to help me. So I made this plan uh, where I, I set my alarm clock every half hour to ring to remind me to say a short prayer, whether that was of gratitude, thankfulness for what was happening today, or asking for God's help, or asking for his presence. So my alarm was going off all the time. My wife was getting annoyed. Why is your alarm going off? So I told her, like, I just want to pray more often. I want to live throughout the day, you know, in communion with God. And I didn't know it, but our foster kid was nearby listening at the time while I was saying this. Several hours later, we were driving down the road in our truck, and my phone went off, and all of a sudden, he launched into this prayer, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the food that you give us. And thank you that you love us. Please help my mom and dad. So he didn't, you know, he, that's childlike prayer. It's not, well, I got to sort this out and that out. And I don't even know if I believe in you. And then, you know, maybe 10 years from now, when that's all sorted out, I can pray to you wholeheartedly. It's just like, we can affect a connection immediately to God in prayer at all places and all times. After that, I was telling him, that uh, we can hear God's voice as well. And he said, oh, that sounds great. How? And I said, well, just get quiet and listen and hear if he says anything inside. And so I gave him a couple seconds, and they said, did he say anything? No. He didn't say nothing. You know, he's just honest. It's like that relationship is honest. It's like sometimes it feels like God's there. Sometimes it feels like he's saying something. Other times, not Another time, uh, he said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get quiet. I'm going to listen to God. And so he got quiet. And um, after a few seconds, he says, him says that he loves me. So because 
We have come to know God our Father through Jesus, his Son. Because we believe in him, we communicate with him. I will show you my faith by what I do. I will show you my faith in my Father by my prayer life, by the fact that I talk to my Father, and I love him, and he loves me, and I express that all the time in prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, and your Father who sees what you do in your prayers will reward you with his presence, no doubt, the greatest gift he could give us. Let's pray together. Father, what a uh, gift you've given us that we could call you that, our Abba, that, that you could deal with the barriers between us and you by, by paying the price of giving us your own son so that we could have confidence that we would be admitted always into your presence as your children. Lord, bless us with more of your presence to know that that is the greatest gift when we feel that you are near and you are speaking words of love to us and affirming our identity as your children. We pray that our prayers, as much as we can express them, that, that Lord, you would inhabit them, that you would come close and give more of yourself to us through our prayers. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message at Mountainside Community Church. If you would like to get connected to one of our campuses or just learn more about who we are as a church, then we encourage you to visit our website, mountainsidechurch.ca. God bless.